Hey there, my name is Vosh. I live stream on YouTube and sometimes, accidentally, in spite of myself, something funny or interesting happens. This is Previously Live. Uh, and so most of you guys watching this, you already know Vosh. Um, Dr. Warren Farrell may be new to... Uh, most of you guys watching this, uh, Dr. Warren Farrell has uh, been involved in, uh, I guess, you know, men's and women's rights movements for, I think this is since the 70s. Is that right, Dr. Warren? Uh, yeah, late 60s, actually. Okay, since the 60s. And, and you know, um, he's received wide recognition for it. Um, you, So this is going back quite a ways for you. Um, this is probably the 60s. Uh, you got your... PhD in political science at NYU, is that correct? That's correct. And uh, as I was looking at before this, I, I missed this the last time we had you on, but uh, you actually have two honorary doctorates in psychology, is that right? Yes, correct. Okay, so um, yeah, he's got three PhDs, so to speak, um, and <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's Yeesh. been involved in you know men's and women's rights movement for a long time. Uh, he, I, if I remember right, there was a certain newspaper. I forgot the newspaper. Sorry, guys. I should have taken notes, but I'm doing this all from memory. Um, my bad. Uh, but <laughs> uh, there was a newspaper that uh, called him the leading uh, male feminist, I think it was, um, back in the day. And the Financial Times uh, called him one of the top 100 most influential people in the world. Uh, so not, not not influential, just thought leaders. Um, thought leaders. Oh, okay. Thought without influence. Okay. <laughs> thought without influence. <laughs> but there there are thought leaders who have had far less influence than you. You've gotten quite around. Thank you. Uh, so I I actually learned about uh, Dr. Warren Farrell from his book, The Myth of Male Power, um, and his most recent book. Um, I. Plan on getting it, I haven't gotten it yet. It is the boy crisis. That's correct? That's correct, exactly. Uh, and so, I mean, is there anything else either you guys would like to say um, before we get started here about who you are or about what the other that you've looked up before him to here? Uh, yeah, I would love to take off if I may introducing myself. Go ahead. It'll be very brief. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm uh, my name's Vosh. I'm a YouTube streamer. Um, I'm, a, as you described, a socialist. I have a bachelor's degree in uh, sociology, which I was very proud with when they gave me that paper. It doesn't quite stand up to three PhDs, but you know, uh, no, no one's competing. Um, and uh, uh, Dr. Farrell, it is actually a tremendous pleasure to be able to talk to you. I've been aware of you since long before I was ever uh, prominent online. Um, some of your work was discussed in some of my classes, in fact, with varying degrees of contention. Uh, typically when I typically when I argue with people on my channel, um, I find they're I'm usually arguing with demagogues online, people who have big audiences and small brains. Uh, it is a tremendous pleasure <laughs> to be able to speak with somebody who I consider to, to be worthy of good and reputable discourse and I am very, very happy to have the opportunity to be a you know a partner in that. Thank you, Bosch. I really appreciate that. And I sort of um, trusted, Tim, that you were of the same type of caliber and thoughtfulness and that you, you, know, you really enjoyed dialogue more than the debate itself. And so I really was, um, was tr trusting that that was um, the case. And then as I saw you online, I, I felt that that was um, validated with that. 
if I were to give, I guess, my background for your audience to be clear with this, um, in the 60s and early 70s, I was on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City and spoke all around the world on uh, women's issues. And uh, that was my identity as a sort of a male, a male feminist. And, um, and then I began to see the women's movement evolve in such a way that I felt was um, uh, more mixed um, in its feelings, especially on the issue of fathers. And so I began to um, represent that, uh, knowing that as I represented the importance of fathers, that I was going to be losing my uh, support system and losing my speaking engagements. And so I did, I did go from 50 speaking engagements per year at universities sponsored mostly by feminist organizations down to zero. And so, um, so but it was, so it was a real tough call for me to know that I was going to be um, basically sacrificing my career to say what I felt needed to be said to I feel, feel help women in the long run and um, and help and have feminists do things that were going to be long-term supportive to women. And so that's you know what has created the title for our um, topic today is feminism helping women or hurting women. All right. So yeah, and before we jump right into this, I think we're just about on the cusp of that. Um, I do want to say, of course, again, I really appreciate both you guys coming on. Um, you two are both people we're really happy to have on. Um, so uh, I run a server, Dis, uh, Blue Politics. Uh, if anyone wants to hop in, it's discord.gg slash blue politics. And our whole thing is just about civility, having this kind of discourse. And uh, you know, both you guys, I you know, respect both you guys and your ideas. And I, I really look forward to this. I'm not exactly sure what to expect out of this, but I know it's gonna be good. And for the most part here, uh, I don't plan to be involved too much. I think my main job is getting you two together. Um, and, you know, I think near the end, if there's something that's, you know, been missing that needs to be addressed in the conversation, I'll try to steer that. But really, I'm, I'm not really going to be stepping in much here. It's mostly just going to be you two having a conversation. Um, it's not going to be a time debate, you know, just regular dialogue going back and forth. Um, but I guess to start us off, um, uh, Vosh, you're the position that feminism is helping women. Would you like to give, I guess, like in five minutes or so, your explanation of why you believe that? And then I guess, Warren, if you would take about five minutes or so saying why you don't believe so, and then just, you know, go ahead and uh, discuss. Um, <clears throat> yes, I'd be delighted. So I'm. these are the views that I have. I don't know if you disagree with any of them, but this is the direction from which I approach this discussion. I think it's fairly undeniable that the history of civilization has been one which in large part entails the oppression of women, and that we live in an era of unprecedented liberation for said group. Um, while that liberation has taken many different forms in many different countries, the feminist movement is as wide and, you know, um, as, as, as broad a plurality as one could ever imagine any liberation movement being. When I think here in the States, when I see the good that it has done, leading all the way from the women's suffrage movement, which I guess many people call the first wave, to um, the second wave feminist movement, which was more interested in this sort of um, uh, dichotomous relationship with men, um, sexual revolution, and reproductive rights. And nowadays we have a more academically grounded intersectional feminism. I think that broadly speaking, these are 
<clears throat> sorry, these are valuable movements that have contributed good to our society. There are undeniably problems that have arisen as well. I do think, for example, that there are many issues that men in particular experience um, as a product of feminist liberation that some feminists seem uncomfortable addressing because to do so is to implicitly suggest that it is men, not women, who are the victims, which obviously is um, sort of ahistorical. But Altogether, I do believe that th there is there is goodness and there is value in this movement. And if one was to disagree with that, I would be interested in knowing if that is because they have a better solution to the problems I've described, or if it is because they are disinterested in the actual goals of the feminist movement. And <clears throat> I apologize. Typically, when I argue with people on feminism online, I'm usually arguing with reactionaries or regressives or even traditionalists, people who believe that women's natural biological place is to serve men and that society works best like, you know, different parts of a, a, a clock um, working together, um, serving different roles, but ultimately coming together to a greater whole. And... Um, when I argue with those people, I tend to go very hard because their arguments tend to be very bad. Um, Dr. Farrell, there was one thing in particular you emailed me that I thought was especially interesting. Do you mind if I repeat it here? It's not personal no, information. No, it's, I if I emailed you, um, I was and didn't ask you to keep it private. Go for it. <laughs> gotcha. Um, <clears throat> you said... It's fascinating being a political liberal who feels rejected by the people I align with on most things and almost worshipped by the people I disagree with on most things. Um, that really resonates with me, at least part of it, because despite being pretty far left, um, very often I find myself clashing with other people with whom I have almost unified political ideals due to differences in approach, differences in rhetoric. It's very frustrating for me. And reading that from you and learning more about you over the past, I guess, week and a half has um, caused me to reframe some of the previous things that I learned about you. And I'm very interested in seeing that um, uh, 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 disconnect settled. Yeah, yeah, very much. Well, good. Um, let's see, I'm not sure that I'll answer that in this sort of thoughts about what I feel is hurting, hurting and helping women. But if I don't, just come back to that and we'll work with that. Um, uh, yeah, I started, uh, as I mentioned in my intro, um, I started out very much in favor of the women's movement. And I still, you know, 100, you know, Phyllis Schlafly used to go around calling me the biggest feminist apologist um, after I wrote The Myth of Male Power. Uh, she still felt I was a feminist apologist. <laughs> and, um, and, the, and, and because I feel that, you know, feminism has opened up options for women that were inconceivable when I went through, I'm 76, and when I went through, um, you know, um, high school, um, uh, brilliant women in my class were still encouraged to be um, as teachers or, um, and, you know, and they, they weren't encouraged to be, you know, maybe you could be a Nobel Prize winning um, um, biologist, or you could, um, you know, be the CEO of a corporation. And uh, to have those limits um, psychologically lifted on women's aspirations is something I'm 100% in favor of. Um, I have two daughters and my co-author of the Boy Crisis book um, has three and um, we want our daughters, A, to be able to have all the opportunities that are um, part of their personality and um, B, um, to be um, you know, marrying men um, that are uh, very desirous of, um, uh, of being turned on by their competence. And the two women I have married in my life, uh, uh, one in my former um, year, younger years, um, 
um, became the, the the top executive under the CEO of um, one of the largest um, companies in the in the country in the world, and so uh, and the other one is uh, my my wife is my wife for the last uh, twenty six years um, is uh, very you know very um, competent has her own public relations firm and so on and so I've always been attracted uh, to competent women uh, the. Um, what I where I began to deviate, uh, and uh, by the way, one of the really big th contributions I think of the feminist movement was uh, was women in sports. There's a, one of the greatest contributors to um, character development is team sports, and uh, we we have unfortunately dropped um, pickup team sports uh, recently, and that's a, a big mistake. And it's also uh, very powerful for women to be able to self-start um, in things like gymnastics and tennis that are sort of quasi-team sports, but are mostly focused on individuals being able to self-discipline and so on. So these have been, I think, uh, contributions of feminism, and I will argue for those contributions continuing and having been a, a positive part of feminism for uh, many years. What I think has become very dangerous about feminism is that um, feminism has uh, well, uh, for example, I'm working now with the White House and I was trying to work with the Democratic candidates. Uh, when I went to Iowa, I interviewed um, nine of the Democratic candidates, seven of the interviews are on my YouTube channel and you can see you know, them. And, um, I, and the Democrats, um, when I was explaining the boy crisis to them, uh, the candidates themselves were very excited about um, learning more about the boy crisis, but to a to a campaign manager, um, I was received no responses, and what I heard was that the campaign managers were fearful of um, of limiting women's freedom to be able to have children by themselves um, and raise children without their dads. And so today, we have fifty three percent of women um, who are um, who have children who are under thirty. Fifty three percent of women under thirty who have children have children without being married. Now, I'm not a big person on marriage per se, except that I found that when there was uh, when there was no marriage and a woman had a child. Um, the father either was completely unknown to the children or was known but was minimally involved uh, and the, ch the children were dad deprived or alternatively the uh, father and mother lived together but the father only remained involved in the children's lives for about three years. The, the marriage was the, the living together situation only remained for about three years and frequently what happened as a result of that is dad deprivation. And then conversely, they didn't want to alienate women who after divorce uh, wished to be uh, fully um, the, the primary parent because they didn't, you know, they wanted to move to a different state with a different man and they wanted to uh, start their life over again and they wanted to take the children with them. Um, and so what I found in doing the research for the boy crisis is that um, the boy crisis exists globally in all 56 of the largest uh, developed nations. Boys are falling significantly behind girls. However, what what shocked me was that the the demographic of boys that is falling behind girls is not all boys. It is boys who are dad deprived. And so when I explained this to the Democratic candidates, the candidates, as I said, the candidates got it, but the, the campaign managers were fearful of alienating the women who wanted to raise their children by themselves 
no, no campaign manager said to me, gee, let's get more information on that. We certainly want, don't want our children to grow up um, in a way that is harmful to them. Um, and nor did they say, you know, ever in, in my personal experiences between marriages, which was about 21 years, um, every woman I went out with was, uh, almost every woman I went out with was a single mom. And the word I heard most frequently from the single moms was the word overwhelmed. And so we have mothers who are overwhelmed by being single moms and also trying to often bring in um, a significant income to be able to support their children effectively. So the moms are overwhelmed, the dads are feeling without purpose and um, adrift and not wanted or needed. Um, and the children are doing worse, both girl and boy children are doing worse in what I found out to be when I did the research for the boy crisis, more than 50 developmental areas from depression to suicide to lack of purpose to worse grades in school. And so now when I went, I didn't even go to the White House with this message, but the White House discovered me and invited me to the White House. And they said, yes, the family has been falling apart. Uh, fathers need to be involved. Uh, we're worried that we can't have um, uh, uh, this no child left behind if we have a parent left behind. And so they got it. And the, um, the libertarian candidate that I uh, was interviewed by got it. He asked me, he said, if I was more of a libertarian, he'd have me be his vice president, uh, the, the uh, candidate. The, um, the White House got it, but the Democrats and feminists did not get it. And the Democrats didn't get it because they feared the wrath of feminism and the eroding of their base. And so that's, and, and the women who are single moms are overwhelmed. And I don't know a single mother who, um, who doesn't want her children to do well, and they aren't getting the information as to exactly what dad parenting contributes um, that leads to their children, girl children as well as boy children, not doing well and so in, the, in these more than 50 areas. And so it, that's just one of the ways I feel that feminism in its present form um, is, is hurting women. Uh, the other way that I'll get to when we have more of a dialogue is the victim uh, orientation. I feel feminism has been deeply involved in honing victimhood as a fine art, calling men the oppressors and women the oppressed. And that I feel is a very, uh, it, it, it feeds into the mentality of the male chauvinists I fought for years who were saying you can't have women in the workplace. Uh, they complain too much, they'll just be victims, they can't get along with men, um, et cetera. And now uh, we're seeing a great deal of that happen, uh, which is the last thing I want to happen uh, on behalf of women. Okay, all right, we're uh, we're going to have to um, take these uh, uh, one at a time, I think. Um, so it would be impossible for me to disagree with the descriptive claims that right now we're having some genuine troubles right now in this country. I don't know about other countries, but I'll trust you when you say that this is mirrored in other developed countries with the socialization of boys, their relative level of like academic and individual attainment, and also with fatherlessness in the home in general. Um, all of the, see, I have a sociology, again, a bachelor degree, but one of the like very first things we were taught, like hammered into us, is that one of the best predictive um, characteristics 
for poverty or for criminality is a single parent home. It's just not okay. Our, our society is just not oriented in such a way to allow a single person, unless that person is exorbitantly rich or talented or otherwise dedicated, to be able to raise one child. It's just very difficult. Um, so the, the issue that you said was that when you were pitching these ideas to, um, to Democratic uh, uh, campaign managers, or when you were discussing these ideas, they didn't want to really bring them to table because they felt it could ostracize a portion of their base and uh, essentially lose them feminist social credit points. I can understand why, um, because there is kind of, if you say a lack of a father figure in the homes of children is causing this like societal decay, the implicit suggestion there, even if it's not true, is that women aren't enough. Um, when, of course, the broader message would be like, well, yeah, if we had a crisis of motherlessness in homes, like we'd be having the exact same issue. Um, the issue that I take, and I guess this is where I'd like to start my inquiry, is that from the research that I've seen, there doesn't actually seem to be a decrease in the, the the happiness or the standard of raising for children who are raised in same-sex parent households, if you're raised by two dads or two moms or anything, which suggests to me that the issue has more to do with the, uh, with the single parent and less to do with the specific absence of a father for boys or a mother for girls. Um, do you do you agree with that, like broadly speaking, that while we may specifically have more of an issue with fatherlessness, it's sort of a general single parent thing? No, I think it's more I, I would I think I would have agreed with you on that before I sort of started doing my intense research on this issue. Um, but the and so let me separate out the two aspects of this. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have good result. We don't know. Uh, what the long-term outcome is of single parent, uh, of, I'm sorry, of um, same parent households where there are two parents of the same gender. Uh, we have two groups of research, one done by people who are very much in favor of, um, of, of, of same-sex um, parenting, and the other one that considers it immoral and um, you know, sort of anti-Christian and, and so on. And so, and those two groups of research, not surprisingly for anyone who understands research as you do, um, is, you know, they are, they come to very different conclusions about the outcome for children. So we need two things on that part of it. One is much more careful research that, that, that passes muster of peer review um, and also longer, um, longer term uh, research where we see not only what is happening with those children in fifth, sixth grade, but what's happening with their, uh, ch those children in their 20s and their 30s. What I have seen though is um, that, the, that there are so many, um, in, in this era where you can turn on the TV and you see, um, uh, images of dads being sort of bumbling fools and so on, well-meaning sometimes, but nevertheless bumbling fools, and and also uh, you know boys who are he hearing uh, the future is female, and so the boy looks at the world and he sees the future is female, and the you know the dad is a bumbling fool, and he ha he's completely with lack of inspiration to be involved, and he doesn't discover the 10 or 11 things that men and women do differently um, as, as a rule in parenting. Sometimes obviously these roles are reversed because these are roles and they're not, you know, they're, they're biologically, there's biological propensity, uh, but you know, part of our biology is our ability to adapt. And so they, the roles are also very important. 
And so, uh, so for example, um, boys are boys with dads and girls with dads are far more likely to engage in roughhousing. Um, and so the uh, and, and the moms more likely to think, oh my God, you know, my children, um, uh, you know, sooner or later there's going to be somebody's going to get hurt here, and so on. And, and sure enough, the mom is usually right. You know, the, the, somebody is hurt. And so the that but but no one um, the father doesn't know. Uh, enough to explain to the mom that the rough housing done with boundary enforcement um, leads to the children having more empathy. That is, the the, ch the father usually stops the rough housing uh, when that rough housing um, gets rough, and the say the the, the son um, puts his um, elbow in his um, the, in the daughter's eyes, or you know the the brother his younger brother's eyes, and the dad says, you know, you continue that, and there'll be no more rough housing. Um, and mom is sort of astonished that, that you know, she, he hasn't learned his lesson to stop the roughhousing. But what dad's mentality is, is that I've now told you that you're going to lose your roughhousing if you don't think of your sister's needs, if you don't think of your brother's needs, that is, you, if you don't have empathy for them, if you don't understand the difference between being assertive versus aggressive. And, um, and so then the next night that they roughhouse, and the dad says, you can't, um, you know, you have to not do this and not do that, and teaches them those distinctions of empathy and uh, distinctions between being assertive and aggressive. The children realize that they're going to lose what they want, the roughhousing, if they don't pay attention to what they need to do, which is to think of their brother and sister and understand the difference between being assertive versus aggressive. And so those children tend to have, the data shows, more empathy because they are required to have more empathy in order to get what they want, more of the roughhousing. And so that's just one of nine, uh, 10, 11 different styles between uh, different um, differences between dad style parenting and mom style parenting that lead to the dad making a very important contribution to the children's life that needs that the children that do the best I found when I did the research for the boy crisis are ones that not only have two parents, but ones that have a, a, a checks and balance tension between the dad style of parenting and the mom style of parenting, where the children get the best of the unconditional nurturance and, and the protection that moms are more likely to give. And they also get the boundary enforcement uh, that dads are more likely to give and the boundary enforcement, what I found, that leads to the children being able to do better in school, better in activities, and therefore feel better about themselves and therefore less likely to withdraw into video game addiction or porn addiction or depression or um, suicidal tendencies and ultimately to mass shootings. Okay. <clears throat> so the first thing that I want to respond to is your argument that we see negative social repercussions from the like the bumbling dad uh, sitcom stereotype or the, these these meaningless platitudes about how the future is female i would completely agree with that um i think that generally speaking i i can't speak for all feminists of course certainly but generally speaking for people who have a very far left predisposition i think most of us view this as a fairly uh, asinine insubstantial form of feminism a the, like a, a, this this meaningless sort of um woke gesturing against society without actually attempting to rebalance any uh gender disparity. So I would agree, like, I, I would never defend that. And there are feminists who think that 
saying the future is female is revolutionary, and I disagree with those people, so I won't defend their positions. The main issue that I have with what you've said, and I've, I've heard some of these arguments before, I guess they came from you, I guess I've heard from people who were, yeah, read from you, um, is that while I recognize, and I'm not questioning the data or the conclusions of the data that you have arrived at, um, what I have here, I don't know if there's a link that I can drop this, but when I say that the scholarly research seems to indicate that um, same-sex parentage produces the equivocable, like, uh, you know, um, uh, standards of raising a children, um, that seems to be borne out, like in the vast majority of data. I have a, um, a meta-analysis here that takes um, 79 studies that all seek to answer the question whether or not um, people uh, are, are raised more, you know, uh, better with uh, uh, opposite-sex parent households or with same-sex parent households. And it seems like the vast, vast, vast majority of them indicate that there doesn't really seem to be a difference. Um, with the exception of four of the 79 studies, and those four studies had uh, key methodological errors that seem to suggest there were other underlying factors that may have contributed to that disparity. So what this suggests to me, if two men or two women can raise children to have the same rough level of academic achievement, financial well-being, criminality, sociological integration, this suggests to me that the necessity of having a mother and a father in the household has more to do with the importance of having a enough parentage and enough time and attention and b having multiple parenting approaches that people can engage with and learn from. Um, after all, I think that sort of uh, uh, biologically, humans were raised uh, in, in communities back in the hunter-gatherer days, you know. It wasn't as though one or two people had sole ownership over the parenting of young people. It was more of a broad community effort. And that suggests to me that there's an inherent benefit in having multiple people have a hand in the raising of a child that might not necessarily be intrinsically linked to their gender or their gender roles, but more broadly with the inherent advantage of a plurality of approaches towards child rearing um and what this suggests to me because it's still bad to have a fatherless home like undeniably the, the data on that is very very clear um what this suggests to me is that if we're to if we're to address this imbalance it might be more prescient of us to focus on elements of parenting that are not inherently associated with the gender of those who are present or absent, because that way we can make these um, these strong prescriptive arguments. You need to have a two-parent household, you got to have people who are married, or at the very least not like a separated family, without kind of implicitly bolstering like anti-woman or anti-feminist arguments. Because if you say like, hey, you know, single women can't cut it, like they can't like raise the kids on their own or whatever, there are a lot of people rubbing their hands and going like, oh yeah, absolutely, women on their own, are you kidding? Kidding me? Raising children? No, they need a man. When what we're actually saying is like, no, the, the, the way our family units in society works, we just need two people. That's just a thing that we need. And I feel like if we deliver that message in that way, it gets a lot easier to make the changes we want without kind of, you know, um, subtly maybe reinforcing the opinions of people we disagree with. Nicely said. Uh, first of all, I would love to see the link in there and, and study more deeply the, you know, the value of the two-parent family, whether even if one is not the biological dad. Um, I think that would be very helpful. I'm, I'm really interested in seeing what the outcomes are. Second, I really appreciate the way you, you know, anytime we can frame something in a way that allows women to feel more included and less wrong, um, I'm very much in favor of that. Uh, so I will you know, really look at that research with that in mind. 
Um, I think what I have seen, um, uh, one of the things we have to be careful about about that research and um, within the framework of being open to it is recognizing that uh, that all every time that uh, parents adopt a child or have a um, you know they take on a child, they are usually um, they're they're usually out of they're they're usually very highly motivated. Uh, adoptive parents are very highly motivated. Um, children that who, uh, every parent that I know when there's a two uh, males or two females raising the children, they're usually highly motivated. They're usually highly educated. They usually have enough income to be able to afford to take on this luxury. And so those are three things we'd have to sort of, and, and in a way we don't have to worry about controlling for that because right now that's what the groups who who um, who do that are more likely to to to, to have in common. Um, so uh, that would not allow for a scientific study to say that fathers are less important than a second parent, but it would allow us to say that in the in the current atmosphere, the types of parents who um, are motivated enough, educated enough, and have enough income to, to, um, to raise the children, um, do, you know, the children, the outcome for the children is, is pretty positive, if, if that is the case. So I'm looking forward to, to seeing more of that research. Um, so that's, I think, one thing. I think the, the, the other part that we need to get across to, to, to moms, is, as I was saying before, is that every mom that I you know, dated between in my 20, 21 years of between marriages, um, every single mom that I dated just used the word overwhelm as the second most frequently used word after love um, at, uh, the, when she was talking with me. And, um, and I don't think a single one of those um, moms understood what oftentimes, and, and I, my, my own wife would uh, agree with this, the woman, one of those women became my uh, future wife, and I helped to raise uh, her, uh, the children that were technically uh, hers and a uh, former um, uh, fa uh, father. One was adopted, one was biological. And, um, and she you know, uh, was very, um, very skeptical about Having, you know, she wanted the father in her in the children's life very much, but oftentimes the father did things that she considered not safe, and she began to be fearful of that. And so, when a child, you know, when a father is much more likely, on average, for example, to let a child play at a, at a schoolyard um, and um, without supervision, whereas the mom is much more likely if she takes a young child to a schoolyard um, to make sure she stays within range, uh, talks on the cell phone, but watches the situation. Uh, dads are much more likely to say, you know, I want that child, um, you know, to, uh, just drop the kid off at the schoolyard, go back, maybe watch a playoffs game, and then. The child with the dropped off by the father is more likely to get into a fight or something negative will happen. Um, but the father never explains that from his perspective, if the child is not going to be picked up by the mother right afterwards, um, the, the father would like to have the opportunity to talk to the son about, okay, you got a, you, you got beaten up at the school. Was there anybody there that was bullying? Was anybody there that was beating anybody else up? Was there anybody there that was um, fouling other people? Was there anyone in there that offered you a drink? Um, you know, what were the red flags that led you to getting beaten up? Uh, for the mother, more frequently, and again, this is not 100%, the mother is much more likely to say, you, you seem to care more about your playoff game than you did about uh, leaving, uh, than you did about staying with the child at, at the playground. But no, the father tends to feel that 
Um, I don't want to overprotect uh, my son or my daughter. I want them to have the experience that, if short of it, you know, it being a truly dangerous experience, um, that where the son or daughter can come back to me and say, this happened to me that was negative, and I can go through with the son or daughter uh, what, that, what that process, what led to that process, and how she or he can avoid that in the future, and not at the when the child gets to be 18 or 20, you go out in the world having been protected by me, and suddenly the world is filled with a lot of body language signals, vibrations, and energy uh, that you didn't learn how to anticipate and know how to deal with. And so, uh, but I don't blame moms on this because there's, you know, the, moms can't hear what dads don't say, and dads don't talk about this to moms. And I don't blame dads on this because in all the parenting magazines I've looked at and examined in the research for the boy crisis, I never saw a single article to dads explaining why, uh, you know, what the value of dropping that child off at, on the, at the playground and then talking to him or her about the problems that, that, that they encountered, uh, that they can prepare for. Da uh, the magazines and the literature does not talk to dads about the value of dad-style parenting, and therefore dads, do, and most dads don't read them anyway, and then dads don't say it to moms, and moms can't hear what dads don't say. And to me, this is one of the discussions that we you know, have. When I did the, the research for the boy crisis, dad deprivation wasn't the only cause. There's about 10 causes of the boy crisis, but of the 10 causes, and I, when I submitted my proposal to the publisher, I submitted all 10 causes as something I was going to write about. Um, but then the more I studied, the more I saw that the dad deprivation was by far the most important of those of those 10 causes. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, yeah, so a few things in response to that. Um, first of all, you made the argument that it can be difficult for us to understand the true extent to which there is a similarity in the parenting effectiveness of opposite and same-sex parent households, because there are other conflating factors. Um, for example, uh, the wealth of the family, adopt adoptive families tend to be wealthier than non-adoptive families for fairly obvious reasons. Um, there's uh, more of a motivation to raise a child because uh, you can't have an oopsie adoption baby. Uh, you have to... Uh, actually wait quite a long time and make some pretty deliberate choices to get that going. But my counter argument to that would be, well, it's true that these are, um, can, you know, um, confounding variables that would have to be accounted for before we could have a true understanding of the broader. I'm not, with the meta-analyses that I provided you, I'm not actually sure how many of them account for these data points or if they try to sociologically sort of level out the playing field, but I would imagine that these are still relevant factors. My argument then would be, well, let's incentivize that motivation. Let's incentivize um, that family planning. Let's compensate for that wealth, because it seems like a lot of the factors that go into um, a, a single-parent household and a lot of the factors that go Go into poor child rearing have to do with really really strong conflating socioeconomic factors that we do as pol well i'm not a policymaker but that policymakers have the ability to meaningfully account for if we uh, incentivize reproductive health and reproductive awareness so people are a little bit more careful when it comes to popping out kids or if we try to address the growing socioeconomic gap in our country and make it more likely that people on the lower end of the spectrum have the wherewithal, the time, the energy, the prescience to meaningfully and effectively raise children, and if we end sort of the policing and social strategies that lead to certain communities having disproportionate
at rates of fatherlessness, like the drug war with the black community, for example. I feel like these are really strong ways to address the root of this problem that don't touch on, like, gendered language. And I'm concerned about that because uh, w what you just described to me the with the playground example and the different parenting styles... Um, as somebody grew up with a fairly feminine mom and a fairly masculine, you know, father, um, these narratives make a lot of sense to me. I have this general intrinsic awareness of what fathers and mothers ought act like. But I recognize as I grow older that these are just that, narratives. These are things that have been not only brought to me, you know, through sort of anecdotal experience, but also that are reinforced through the aforementioned schlubby dads on the sitcoms who don't care if their kids get into a scrap, but the moms are hyper-attentive and don't want their kids like running off without the the, the, the the lunch bag packed full with an apple, you know? Um, that they're narratives, ultimately. And the problem with, you know, framing a sociological problem through like a narrativized sense or, or a lens of analysis that's narrativized is that it can become really difficult to understand what you're looking at and whether or not it's intrinsic or whether or not it's a product of the stories you're pushing onto it that you feed into this sort of self-perpetuating cycle now i am of the opinion that there are there are probably some intrinsic behavioral differences between males and females i like th i think that's fairly evident and even if we had some perfect gender parity world with with no social differences and everyone is treated the same i still think there would probably be some differences like statistically between how people behave but when we when we look for these stories in our sociological interactions we make it more likely that these stories and these um, dichotomous relations become reified and they become more and more of a thing and eventually you know we get this idea in our heads that every woman or at least most women are kind of like a 1950s housewife and every man or most men are like uh, I don't know, like Tim Allen on Home Improvement you know we get these really really like these wide like this huge level of sexual dimorphism that isn't really inherently represented but is something we kind of built so my goal would be if I see sociological problems that have something to do like with gender I want to address them in ways that don't reify or reinforce that that gender binary or that gender sort of divide because I think in doing so we contribute to the problems of the next generation. I do think boys are suffering right now in a lot of really unique ways. I don't think they have like an identity to ascribe to. I think they're really confused. Like, do they play like the, the, the arrogant like bad boy or are they supposed to be super chivalrous and kind and give gifts or are they supposed to like, you know, like hands off, like don't even talk to women. They might like not want it. You don't want to be creepy. Like, I, I think there's a lot of confusion. I really sympathize with that as somebody who was an awkward kid in high school. But I feel like that came first and foremost from a narrative and less from um, a, uh, uh, a, a social imbalance that was a product of socioeconomic conditions. That's the narrative that I care about. Like, what do we do? How do we like teach boys how to live well in our society? And if there's any intrinsic problems they're facing, like some serious policy-oriented stuff, we can tackle that too. Uh, I guess I, like that would be my approach towards these issues. I think I agree with you like that these problems exist. It's just a matter of... Um, the way in which we try to address them. Yes. <clears throat> First of all, I, I have a, a lot of agreement with some of the things you're saying. And um, I feel like, you know, I, I do see an epigenetic transfer of male versus female qualities that have evolved throughout the millions of years that animals have become uh, humans and so on. But the, the really important thing is for, I think, um, one of the things I'm working with the White House about is to 
um, to suggest a father warrior program, uh, war, warrior, W-A-R-R, not warrior, W-O-R um, program. And to, to encourage, because boys used to have the sense of purpose, every generation had its war. In every, in, in every generation's war, we trained our boys to be disposable in that war, uh, to, be, to join, to be, uh, we still have to this day, the male only draft registration, which is by far and away the uh, most unconstitutional law that we have. Um, by a violation of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause to, to have your 18-year-old son, you know, be drafted and, um, and not your 18-year-old daughter. Uh, if you're going to, I mean, not draft, drafted, but draft registration, uh, that's, you know, you can't have equality and have that. Um, and so the, those are, um, but the, um, but our boys, um, I, I think, so the, the old sense of purpose was a boy, would be disposable in that generation's war. The good news was he had a sense of purpose. The bad news was um, that his purpose was to be disposable and he was called a hero if he died so somebody else could live. And that was not to me about, <clears throat> to me that was not about male privilege, but about male sacrifice. And I think what, you know, part of what's happened is we have a number of things are happening simultaneously. One is we have a culture which told, which since feminism has told men that you are the oppressors and women are the oppressed, as opposed and and every you know um, every women's studies gender studies course in almost every university would agree with what I'm going to this sentence that I'm going to say. We live in a world in which we has been dominated by a patriarchy, and the patriarchy has created rules to benefit men at the expense of women, and the flaw in that is that. We did not live in a world that was dominated by a patriarchy. We lived in a world that was dominated by the need to survive. And in order to survive, neither my grandparents nor my grandmother, uh, neither of my grandparents had rights. They had responsibilities and they had obligations. And those responsibilities and obligations um, forced women, no matter how brilliant they were, to think of themselves as being more feminine the more children they had, especially before birth control, and, um, and to, 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 to be feminine by, by marrying wealthy and having children. Um, and that would maximize their lives. And so the feminists have got that down pat. They understand that, and I would like the end to that, to that world. Um, but what they didn't, what they missed was that what was also simultaneously happening is that when a man and a woman had children, the father tended to give up doing anything he really wanted to do, like be a musician or be an artist, as in starving artists, or be an actor, because almost every actor is called waiter. And, um, and the um, and be, you know, or to be an elementary school teacher because if if you had four or five children without birth control, or like my father's parents had nine, uh, ten children, including him, um, th that the father was not free to be able to do something like get whatever musical gigs he wanted, or to teach an elementary school that didn't pay enough. He was forced into becoming a an administrator or to quit education altogether and sell insurance and not sell insurance locally, but experience what I call the father's catch 22, where he had to love the children, to, to, he had to create the love, be, love his children by being away from the love of his children. And no one asked him if he wanted to sell his insurance nationwide 
so he could make more money or whether he'd have more, he'd rather be with his children to a greater degree. Mm -hmm. When men are asked that question, they say they would rather be with their children to a greater degree. When the Pew Research Center asked that question of men who were full-time working men, 49% of the full-time working men said they would like to give up their job in order to be able to be with their children to a greater degree. Feminists have taken the fact that when there is children, there's a tendency for men to earn more money and to, to get higher positions of a responsibility to earn that money to support their wives and children. And they've, they've put that into the framework of men earn more money than women for the same work as opposed to listening to the data that I spend seven years gathering for a book called Why Men Earn More and What Women Can Do About It, that there are, instead of saying, oh, it is not men who earn more money than women, it is dads who earn more money than moms because when men become dads, they forfeit doing what they love to do in order to do what they need to do that earns more money uh, that the children can live off of more effectively, go to better schools, um, have better neighborhoods that they live in, and, and saying thank you fathers for historically making this sacrifice so that we could have the opportunity to love and be loved at home while you went off and sold product X or you went off to war and risked um, killing and being killed away from home. And so, yes, I'm in favor of um, the gender. I've, I've never called myself a women's movement, uh, in favor of the women's movement per se or the men's movement per se. I've always said I'm in favor of a gender liberation movement in which we liberate both sexes from the rigid roles of the past and create opportunities for both sexes to have more fluid roles in the future. And what conservatives don't get about what I'm talking about is that, is that capitalism has created the developed countries uh, that have created the, and that's that have created opportunities and privileges uh, for men and for women, and that and that and then one of those privileges is the freedom to have more fluid gender roles. So where the fluid, you know, so every child, every parent should be talking with their children about um, observing their children about seeing what's right and natural for them, and then uh, then modifying that to what's functional for them as well, and combining the best of both worlds. And so. Um, that, you know, that's the world I would like to see. And I'm sad that feminism has, has taken the world of male sacrifice at war and turned it into male privilege and male entitlement because it's left so many women feeling so angry toward men as opposed to, and men backing off for that. It's led to the men going their own way movement into um, into, into men um, being involuntarily celibate. Uh, these are not healthy. These are not healthy reactions, but they're reactions that are expectable, ex expected when somebody does not feel uh, that their that their contribution to the world has been um, not only disregarded, but they've been turned into the devil, into the oppressor, when neither sex historically was oppressed. Both sexes. Um, had roles which limited them compared to us. <clears throat> when I first became an author or wanted to become an author, <clears throat> my dad sat me down and said, Warren, you could not become an author. Um, only about one in a hundred authors even get a book published. 
and the average book only makes an author about $5,000, <coughs> excuse me, per book. You can't support a wife and children on $5,000. If you can't get a, find a publisher, you'll never find a wife. And besides Warren, psychology is a terrible area to work in. If you work in psychology, you're training people to do what they want to do. What you have to do is train people to do not what they want to do, but what they need to do. Uh, from his perspective, having been born in 1910, gone through two world wars and a depression by the time he was uh, 35, from his perspective, I engaging in psychology was misleading people into thinking that they could think about what they wanted to do. And so, but nobody ever acknowledged him for, um, for doing, or feminists never acknowledged a man, a man like my father for doing what he needed to do because he didn't even allow himself to think about what he wanted. He only thought about what my mom wanted and what my sister and my brothers uh, wanted. Yeah. All right. I wrote as much of that as I could down um, uh, 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 to respond to. I think that the majority of what you said, I agreed with. Um, and there are there are a few parts that I'm I'm a little uh, curious about. So, <clears throat> first of all, um, now everyone's education differs, and I recognize that different people are going to have different experiences with academic feminism. But what I was taught, and I am uh, to my understanding, this is a fairly new framing of feminism, um, is that the act of assigning culpability for systemic oppression to individual actors is highly counterproductive. Uh, I was taught um, that, for example, it would be extremely counterproductive uh, to um, label me as a man, sort of a symptom of the patriarchy, um, or, or, or I guess an agent of the patriarchy, um, in large part, I suppose, because I'm a feminist YouTuber, but also because there's a huge difference between individual responsibility and broad social responsibility. Um, so I would not, I, I agree. And this, I will absolutely, I, I guess not concede, but I will agree with you on this point that there are strong factions within the broader feminist movement that do seem very interested in maintaining a dichotomous relationship of uh, oppressor and victim between men and women respectively. And I find this to be an entirely counterproductive effort, um, in part because um, railing against individuals for their gender isn't really a productive way of ameliorating gender differences, and in large part because I don't think it's very fair, just as I wouldn't blame an individual white person because their ancestors own slaves. I don't think it would be particularly fair of me to just, uh, you know, uh, carte blanche blame like a man because he, the genitalia or social, you know, normalization with which he was born or assigned um, corresponds in some way to those of oppressors. I would completely agree with that. Um, you claim that we don't really have a system of male privilege, just of separate obligations that lock both groups into their own roles. Um, I would agree with this in large part. Um, it reminds me very much of the Hegelian master-slave dialectic, where you have you have two people, you know, you have the, the master and the slave, who both achieve self-consciousness through looking at one another and recognizing the relationship between the respective freedoms. But at the end of the day, the master remains the master and the slave remains the slave. And that's kind of how I feel about the relationship between men and women in our society. There is no denying that there are some elements of being a man that 
fucking suck. I would never defend that. The draft, I completely agree with you. The fact that the draft is still gender segregated is disgusting. Um, and uh, I mean, everyone's read Death of a Salesman, right? Um, what many people consider to be evidence of, you know, uh, I, so, misogynists consider it evidence of man's steadfast work ethic. And, uh, you know, feminists consider it to be evidence of men's increased access to the upper echelons of business success. But I mean, it is what it is. It's wage slavery and it's a social expectation to be complicit in a system of their own oppression. Um, at least as a socialist, I would believe the expectation to work until you die to provide bread for your family to be an oppressive expectation. I completely agree with that. Um, I still believe that on the whole, though, like men are very, very heavily favored in... <sighs> Maybe privilege is too inarticulate a word for this. I think men are given far more power. I'm not sure if men are granted more happiness. Um, and I think people mistake those sometimes. I've had arguments since I was a little boy, you know, with, with angry men. And there are many, many angry men. And um, they tend to, the argument tends to be something of the effect of, um, you know, they say that men have privilege, but like, look at me, I'm unhappy. All women have to do is like be cute and cry in a hallway and all the cute boys will run up to her and say like, hey, how you doing? And it took me a little while to realize there's some legitimacy in that concern. But there is ultimately a huge difference between the privilege to be happy and the privilege to have power. And I think that's the issue we're looking at. When I say men are privileged, I'm saying men have a massively disproportionate representation in the upper echelon of government and the amount of violent crimes committed against women by men is massively outweighing the amount that the reverse takes place. And when like incel or MGTOW types say women are privileged, what they're saying is women have an easier time being happy in social situations. So I feel like our definitions kind of miss each other, but both of them are very, very important. Uh, like, very much so. Men commit suicide at a hugely disproportionate rate, um, particularly white men, for no doubt a wide variety of reasons. But that increased rate of suicidality is evident. It is a it is a, a an illness. It is evidence of something wrong. It's not just some intrinsic characteristic of men to off themselves. And I think as long as that statistical difference exists, we have to recognize the fact that there are legitimate grievances men ought have with the way gender roles pan out today. And any feminist movement that doesn't take that into account is a feminist movement that is not only not going to be able to reach most men because they seem tone deaf to their concerns, but is also, I don't think, particularly interested in ameliorating gender differences, only in bolstering mm -hmm. women. And I do have an issue with that. Um, mm -hmm. So I think I would agree with most, yeah, no, I think, I, yeah, no, I think I would agree with most of your prescriptions here. And I'm glad that you said, um, I'm not like for a women's or a men's movement, I'm for a movement of gender liberation, because it reminds me a little bit of how I speak. I do a lot of arguments on this channel. I almost never refer to myself as a feminist, even though I consider myself one and I share the positions with, you know, a broad academic mainstream third wave feminism. I don't say it because a lot of people associate feminism with this dichotomous exclusionary bullshit that I don't want to be a part of. I prefer to go, you know, hey, I'm just in favor of gender liberation. I'm in favor of gender abolitionism. I just want people to live happy lives free of social expectation. That's what I care about. And that you care about it too, I think ultimately means we're fighting for the same basic changes in society. Um, if, I, if, I, if I may, there's something I want to ask you. Maybe we could shift the, the topic slightly. Um, I want to go back to that thing that you emailed me. You emailed me, uh, you know, it feels, or I, I'm sorry, I'm paraphrasing, I don't have it in front of me anymore, but that it feels, it's strange to be a liberal and to be ostracized from many of those liberal spaces, but to be idolized with people who disagree with you. Um, would you mind, just so I don't mischaracterize you, telling me who 
disagrees with you and with what they disagree? Well, I, I gave a, the example as we were talking before about um, the campaign managers, and that's sort of like a, a symbol of, um, you know, and, and almost all the um, many people when they hear me talk at all about the types of things I've been talking about for the past hour about, you know, that men have issues and boys have issues and um, that we have to be, you know, um, that, you know, that affirmative action is still that, you know, that, that boys are going only about 40% of college graduates an hour male, and yet the, the scholarships in colleges are for females to a much greater degree than for males, um, except where you encourage boys to hurt themselves like in football. Uh, but the, um, and so that um, when I, uh, that I can't, so, for, and, and then another example would be that I know when I was um, on the board of now in New York City, um, Columbia University and many universities were competing to have me teach mm -hmm. at their university, like Brooklyn College and Rutgers, um, even before I had my PhD and even before I wrote my first book. Whereas now I've written, I, you know, um, a, a great many books on, on men and gender issues and, uh, and on uh, supporting a gender liberation movement. And I'm not aware of being able to get a job at any good university in the country. And if anybody can um, um, help me with that, and you know, I, I'm, I'm out here by Mill Valley. And, <laughs> I'll you know, email some of my old professors. We'll see what we and, can do. And get me a job at Berkeley or Stanford, which is within reasonable distance. I'd be um, happy to talk about these issues um, in, in a fair and balanced, what I hope is a fair and balanced way, or at least um, offers a different perspective than what we've he heard in universities. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm working with a couple now that um, uh, I, I, don't, I, I coach um, men and women to do couples communications. I do couples communication courses around the country. And, um, and, the, and the, this couple that was, um, that was apart from each other and separated, um, they've come to me and now they're ready to get back together. But before they got together with me, uh, their son, who um, knows me and is in, um, was in high school at the time, uh, said, oh, I've heard he's a misogynist um, and, and, prevent, and sort of was trying to prevent the mother from seeing me. And it's now the mother that is asking um, um, her, her husband to make sure that, that we continue the work that, they, that they're doing with me. Um, and so that she feel that because my, my work is about listening and, you know, one of the workshops I'll be doing is a workshop called The Open Mind. But instead of being seen as somebody that's trying to get men and women to listen to each other, um, almost all, everyone that 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 um, that looks reads books like *The Myth of Male Power* or *The Boy Crisis* when they start bringing these issues up um, to their women friends or um, at dinner parties, uh, they say that the they can feel the energy of "Are you a misogynist?" or "Is there something? Um, do you hate women?" or um, "Is you know why are you taking this position very suspiciously?" And most of them, the great majority of them, just back off and learn to shut their mouths. And I think this is extremely unhealthy. As you know, so what we have, I have this sort of dichotomy for, for me. You were talking a minute ago about this happiness versus power. And to me, the only that to me, the purpose of life is to be happy without doing harm to others. And that, and that that's the real power to discover what makes you happy, to discover who your unique self is. And, um, and I understand because I'm, I'm very attracted to women who are very successful. The women who are very successful, who grew up when I grew up, did not have an atmosphere that said, 
you have the options to become anything you want to be in the power structure as we define power structure. But in the myth of male power, I say, I call it the myth of male power because I define power as feeling obligated. Um, uh, so I don't, I, I challenge the definition of power, which is I feel saying to men, you are to feel obligated to earn money that someone else spends while you die sooner. In the way that my father said to me, you have an obligation to earn money uh, that your family will be able to spend um, and without adding so you can die sooner. Um, but, the, but that has become the reality of being unhappy in your profession so you can make the rest of the family happy. And so what I'm saying to both men and to women is, I, first of all, I want our parenting process to take advantage of what the privileges that we have to be able to discover, uh, to help our children discover who their unique selves are, but then to have the discipline that historically speaking has come more from dads, um, not just you know, wait till your dad comes home, but the tendency of dads to do more boundary enforcement, even as moms do more boundary setting. Dads are more likely to, moms and dads are both likely to set boundaries the same way. They both say you can't have your ice cream until you finish your peas. Um, but moms are more likely after the child expresses the fact that he was maybe bullied at school or had a bad day. Moms are more likely to get into a, okay, I'm not going to get into a big arg argument over a few peas, sweetie. Um, okay, have this many more peas than you could have your ice cream. And the child has half that many peas. And the mom says, all right, go ahead and have your ice cream. At least you tried. Whereas dad is far more likely to say, no, you can't have your ice cream until you finish your peas. And the data shows us that those children um, are who have the requirement to finish their peas before they have their ice cream have much more delayed gratification, much more postponed gratification, are much more successful in life. And so we need to both encourage our sons and daughters to discover their unique self without being in the straitjacket of, of gender. But at the same time, uh, we and at the same time, we need to have the father recognize that either the father involvement, or if you have two gay men and two gay women, that one of those parents at least has to, in addition to helping the child find his or her dream and talent, has to, in addition to that, um, provide the, the postponed gratification and the boundary enforcement, not just the boundary setting. That boundary setting without boundary enforcement leads for the child to the, leads the child to have a contempt for the parent a lack of respect for the parent that leads to a, a lot of anger rebellion um, between the, the children and the parent, especially during adolescent years. And so I, I'm, I'm sort of redefining power, if you will. And the way you see my definition be more relevant. So the, the women I grew up with, they all wanted power in the external world. And those women were severely curtailed in, as I grew up. Um, and fortunately, the feminist movement has freed that. But what no one has looked at effectively is that at the same time, um, a single father that walks into a park and has his son and daughter sit on his legs um, is not usually invited into the female group of mothers um, and, and is often looked at askance. And um, reports of, of feeling the discrimination against that man as a father in, the, in court a good part of the income that I have made, unfortunately, um, none of which I should make, um, is being asked by fathers to testify in court so that they could have an equal amount of time with the children and explain to the judge as to why that's so important. Um, uh, and so we have made this enormous progress helping women enter into the world of 
of work and, um, and, and, um, and the external power, um, but we haven't helped men um, under, um, enter the world of being full-time fathers with safety, and especially after divorce, the, the courts are extremely biased against dads being equal parents. And that's, uh, uh, that's part of the change that we need to make, not only for men, but also for children and also for moms who need to understand what biological dads tend to contribute um, and, 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 and look at um, the value for their children of having those biological dads in their life. One last thing, if I may. Um, the father, one of the things, the gifts of the, of the biological father is that the boy in particular, the, the girl raised by a single mom, um, tends to at least have the same gender role model and has more permission in society to cry and um, say what's bothering her. Uh, the boy with a single mom does not have a male role model and he doesn't have, he has less societal permission to cry, express his feelings and say what's bothering him. And so he tends to keep those feelings to himself um, and not feel he has a man to be able to guide him um, to uh, both a purpose, um, a discipline, and a mom to guide him to, uh, with a dad, to ex help him to express his feelings. And I think that's one of the reasons why I I'm a stepdad to, to, to two daughters. And um, I was hoping when I started the research for the boy crisis that a stepdad would be proven to be as equal um, to a, a biological dad. I could not find research that that um, that uh, that helped me to um, see that. And my biggest contribution in, in writing the um, book on called Father and Child Reunion was to send the draft of it um, to the, uh, the 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 biological father of one of the children and the stepdad of the, uh, the the adoptive dad of the other child, and have that dad make a decision to move physically closer um, to those children so he could be more involved in their lives and. That was when the children made their biggest uh, positive step forward. <clears throat> yeah, um, there were a few more things I disagreed with here. First of all, with regards to your definition of power, um, so while I reckon, so I, I completely agree that power is in and of itself a burden, and that there are, um, I guess, in, if we were to take like a broader axiomatic approach to what we value in a life, being happy or contented or fulfilled would probably be more important. Like I would, I think most people would agree they would rather like live happy and contented with a good family they care for than to be enormously powerful but like empty inside. I think most people would agree with that, and I would agree with that. But I don't think that means we can completely define out the relevance of like power in a traditional sense you know um but, <laughs> yeah yeah so so while so if, if we're if we're to flatten the gender you know dichotomy exclusively to how much can one fulfill their personal interests in life i i would be willing to work within that frame but if we were to take a look at power in a traditional definition there is a huge imbalance historically and you know contemporarily between men and women and i think that warrants sociological consideration um i mean you can say all you want like oh i might be more fulfilled than the president of the united states of america but as with the master slave you know let's hope yeah yeah <laughs> hopefully <laughs> but they remain the president and i remain but a humble youtuber um 
So, but with with regards to like the the happiness um, element here between men and women, I, again, men have a higher rate of suicidality. So I am by no means making the argument that men have a peachy keen. But I think like if we're to take a look sort of at the narrative experiences of women, I can create like plenty of stories and find plenty of data corresponding to them having an equal or maybe even greater level of social obligation. Um, like uh, raising children can be fun and incredible and you know fulfilling, but it's also a devastating devastating blow to your other life options and this experience this is experienced by women more than men because men aren't really socialized into being expected to be solely responsible for child rearing um for all like the stories of men being like shackled by the expectation of being the breadwinner there are also the women who have to stay at home and make sure they stay skinny and clean and pluck their eyebrows and they have to have dinner ready by the time you know the the the, the father gets home or you know she gets yelled at the experiences of abuse and and misogyny and oppression that women go through um, very often, you know, specifically because of their gender and not because of other conflating factors, I think, means that one could make a fairly compelling case that there are um, there are there are a fair number of uh, happiness oriented burdens that are sort of shared across the aisle. Um, I don't know if there's any like hard flat data on like which gender is more or less like miserable in general. If suicidality is the rate by which we're to look at, then it would suggest that might be men. But women attempt suicide at a higher rate than men. They just don't tend to use firearms, which is, you know, I think most would agree a fairly reasonable and effective way of finishing the job. So the question then is, is it because women are less happy that they're killing themselves or attempting suicide with less lethal methods? Or is it because they have a, on average, greater social group that they know will respond in some way to their sort of call for help with an attempted suicide? And if we yeah. ask that, like we back up a few more levels, do they have that greater social group because they're privileged or do they have that better social group because they're relayed into the role of socializing while men are expected to be a little bit more um, isolated and self-reliant? And if we go back like farther than that, like, well, that also kind of is an element where men are getting fucked over because it sucks to be taught to have to be self-reliant and to be taught to not have to open up to the people around you because that's what leads men to be so miserable and lonely all the time. But ultimately, the thing that I'm getting at here, if we roll back all these stories far enough, we end up at toxic gender expectations, but it feels like some of your prescriptive judgments here reinforce those expectations. You make the argument that you want people to be able to grow up without these burdensome gender roles. But then you say, like, this is how men parent, and this is how women parent, and both of these, the, you know, you mix them together, and there you get a good kid. But ultimately, what you, I feel like you're doing is you're telling the stories that you're trying to keep kids from learning. Because if you say women parent like this, men parent like that, then their kids are going to be raised in such a way. If you say uh, uh, men make are better with this element of parentage because they're more willing to delay gratification and allow for selective levels of, you know, roughhousing, which builds empathy, then you're kind of setting the expectation that men's are, men are supposed to be the ones who are a little more stern, stoic, and violent. And then the kids grow up and they learn that from their fathers and the cycle continues. As long as the evidence right now points in favor of um, same-sex gender, or sorry, same-sex parent couples having about equal levels of child-rearing ability as opposite-sex parent couples. I'm of the opinion that it might actually be counterproductive for us to frame the, uh, the, the raising of children in these dichotomous terms because all we're doing is pushing them into the same boxes that we're doing this to keep them from having to walk into any box to begin with. And that's one of the reasons why, and 
to, to, to put a bow on it. Earlier I said I had heard this argument before. It must have come from you. Obviously, you wrote it. The person I heard it from was a fascist. And that's what worries me a little bit. No, I don't know. No, I know. But I know why you're using the argument. You care about gender liberation. But I feel like the way it's pushed rolls back to this gender essentialism, or it can be interpreted as a form of gender essentialism that ends up bolstering like really nefarious groups of people. You were a part of the documentary Red Pill. I think you were the probably the best part of it, in my humble opinion. Um, but a lot of the people who like that document are pretty virulent misogynists um, who use your arguments as a way of framing a sense of, paradoxically, male victimhood and, um, and, and gender, you know, division. And that's what I guess I'm concerned about most. I feel like if the ultimate enemy here is gender, the goal must be to fight it, uh, you know, with, with water, not with fire, to beat it without gender, not with sort of this prescription of gender responsibility, um, if that makes any sense. Yeah, a lot, it makes a lot of sense. The, um, when I talk about dad-style parenting, <clears throat> maybe I have to be more careful the way I speak about this. Um, um, I'm talking about <clears throat> a style of parenting that has evolved more from dads than from moms and vice versa. The, the, the propensity to um, protect the child, to nurture the child, to, to deal with what we call unconditional love. Um, and we think of moms as having unconditional love, whereas uh, we don't understand that moms and dads both have unconditional love. They just, uh, dads sort of have more conditional approval as a rule. So saying dads tend this way and moms tend this way, um, to me is compatible. Understanding the tendencies of moms and dads, women and men, is to me very compatible with saying these are tendencies that evolved over millions of years of evolution. We now have enough knowledge of epigenetics to understand that that what's what happens is passed on from generation to generation. A man who goes into war and is um, traumatized and comes back with PTSD, we now know it takes about five or six generations if that PTSD is serious to be for it to be gotten rid of. And so these are the tendencies we've inherited. But capitalism that has led to freedom, uh, that has led us to be able to make choices that are not gender restricted, um, can release both sexes from the restrictions of gender, even as we don't deny the possibility, the probability that one gender based on history um, and evolution <coughs> has tended to be more likely <coughs> to parent in a certain way, to be a certain way, to deny their feelings. Um, to may, I, may I quickly jump in to uh, clarify something? <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry about that. No, it's quite all right. Uh, just, uh, just to quickly clarify. So when you say dad style, mom style, you're making a descriptive argument about how the gender tends to align with these parenting methods. But you would be like, for example, if we could envision a society 200 years in the future where we're more liberated than we are today, even if we're not using the term dad or mom style parenting, you would argue like it doesn't really matter what genders are doing it. It just matters that these roles be filled. That's well, either the roles be filled <clears throat> and that both genders get brought up without feeling that they will be ostracized, okay. different in a negative way if they choose to be gay, straight, trans, if they choose to be um, 
um, more, so for example, uh, just to be very concrete about this, um, uh, because of the type of women I tend to sort of hang out with in my <laughs> background in feminism, um, the um, many women have said, I feel so badly that, you know, men can be have it all men. You know, they can have these women at home, uh, they, you know, taking care of um, the children while they go out and work and they, you know, um, can make all this money. And I feel I'm constantly torn. Um, between my the workplace and my home and um, and uh, or I can't get married to begin with because I really have good ambitions to break through the glass ceiling and therefore I'm going to be um, I'm going to you know not be able to really do um, have both worlds why is it that men can be have it all men and women can't be have it all women and the reason um, and, and my response I feel is very empowering to women and my response is this you can be a have it all woman Here's how. You can keep an eye out for men who are listening at a party rather than talking at a party. You can keep an eye out for men who have vibrations of nurturing. You can keep, you can talk to men uh, when you go out with men um, and, and look for a man maybe that doesn't ask you out right away and find a man that you ask out right away and pay his bill or share his bill rather than expecting him to pay because he asked you out. So if you so look for characteristics in men that are more nurturing, listening, facilitative, and then specifically ask a man, how would you feel about my being focused on my work um, and you taking care of the children full time? And if the and and you will get some men who will go and other men that will watch for whether you really respect would respect a man like that or not, because men need something that I found among men is that men need more than anything else. They want the love of women. They want the respect of women. They know there will not be love of women that will last long if they don't respect them. If you ask men to ask to that, if you said to men. Um, if you walked on your hands, we'll be sexual with you and we'll be attracted to you and we'll be long-term sexual and attractive. We'd have hand-walking contests <laughs> within a short period of time. And pretty soon we'd be having contests for men to walk on one hand rather than the other. And the point there being that, um, that there is a way for women to be have it all women. And when the feminist movement focuses more on women as a victim, as opposed to when I wrote the Why Men Earn More book, I had 25 ways that women can earn as much or more than men. And feminists, rather than saying, oh, great, there's 25 concrete and proven ways that men can earn as much or more than women, uh, men, uh, let me read that book. Not a single feminist that I'm aware of, except a couple that debated me, um, read the book and, and introduced it to other women and said, here are some ways, 25 ways you can empower yourself if, if you define power as earning money or having status or having power in the traditional sense. And so this is um, this way, the focusing on victimhood, uh, the focusing on um, the hashtag Me Too is wonderful, but a hashtag Me Too monologue is terrible because it's making men in businesses feel like um, they can't say anything. There needs to be a hashtag Me Too dialogue so that the frame is, let's hear what's bothering women. Let's hear what's bothering men. 
uh, let's hear what their, how their stories match or don't match. And so when, when I do work in couples communication, the main thing I teach people to do is how to listen to each other without thinking about their stories while they're listening and how they're more of a victim. Um, and so when I talk to when I talk to executives, I hear executives basically saying, you know, um, I'm afraid to mentor a woman. And if you know Cynthia Epstein's work, she said, you know, she found mm -hmm. that the great percentage of women who went, who, who got far in their work, um, even when there were women there to mentor them, were more likely to be mentored by men. And so, um, so there's, it is so important for men to not look at a woman who they feel has potential and they have respect for them and say, I have a wife and children at home. If I mentor this woman behind closed doors in my office, there'll be gossip. If I open the doors, somebody will overhear half a sentence that I say, there'll be gossip. If I take the woman out of the office for dinner, there'll be gossip. Um, and if the woman doesn't move as quickly as she would like to, and she feels like I'm holding her back or I said something that can be taken out of context, I could be out of a job, I could be not promoted, I can ruin my family, I can ruin my reputation, I'll, be, I'll become depressed or suicidal, um, I'll be looked at as a bad guy, I don't want to take the risk. And I have to say that in the, in the dozens of executives I've talked to about this, not a single one would say, will I let you use my name? But every single one said, this is the way I feel. I will not any longer mentor a woman, even though I have a history of doing that, um, because I feel, this is, I'm sorry, executives with uh, wives mm -hmm. and usually with children. Um, they're, they're afraid of jeopardizing the rest of their life for something coming up out of context in a way that makes them look like they were a part of the um, the evil male, as opposed to um, uh, caring about the woman's future. And by the way, I will say that a lot of these men are attracted to the women they're mentoring. And a lot of these women are attracted to the men who are mentoring them. It's just that if, and if that results in, the, um, in something happening that goes above and beyond or feelers being quite pointed out, um, all of those can be taken out of context or in context and become a way of ruining a man's life. And I, and the reason, one of the reasons I feel that feminism is today hurting women as much as helping women is because it doesn't, um, it doesn't create a framework or an incentive or an encouragement for here's the way we feel. We need to have the time for women to have a hashtag me too moment. And we will not allow that to be had without also hearing men. That should be the feminism that empowers women. Okay, so I think one of the broad concerns that I have is I think that we have fundamentally different lens of analyses that we look at these problems from. Um, so the Me Too situation, for example. Um, so women have, I think this is fairly inarguable, at least from what I've seen, been subjected to an extraordinary amount of, of sexual harassment and at sometimes violence broadly in business, largely as a product of, um, you know, male-dominated firms and they're not really being an institutional culture of addressing these problems. And the Me Too movement, you know, is, I, I don't know, I, I, I mean, nobody has any data on what percentage 
decrease there has been in sexual misbehavior, but I think it's fairly broadly a response to that. The issue that I have, though, is it feels like a lot of people who are in, who are interested in um, dealing with this gender imbalance, um, like they step in one layer too late. Like the moment Me Too happens, all of a sudden a lot of men get very scared, very nervous. I don't want to even interact with women anymore. I don't know, like, um, I don't even know, like, if it's safe for Me Too. And like, that's how women have felt about working with men for a, like half a century. <laughs> like that, like that's been their reality for pretty much the entirety of men and women working together. So it's it's strange that like suddenly we, we we get very concerned with parity like at that level, but then not at like the one level back. I would make the argument that all of these issues we're seeing from the original subjugation of women to Me Too to the response to Me Too are all broadly a product of antagonism between men and women on a class level. That there's this inherent distrust, agitation, exploitation, um, that that is sometimes mutual and sometimes very one way. Um, that leads to problems no matter how you look at it for for, for everyone. You know, um, again, like uh, 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 a dichotomous relationship of oppression and subjugation is not necessarily one where the subjugated is the only one suffering. I would usually make the argument that the oppressor offers, often suffers. You know, in their own way. In this case, we're seeing some blowback from that. I don't know how to fix these issues, uh, like the Me Too thing, for example. Because on one hand, saying, hey, you know, hey, you know, women, you're being a little bit too, you're being a little bit too fearful here, back off a little bit. Well, I don't know if we can really say that after half a century of them having basically no recourse against a broad pattern of sexual misbehavior and misconduct against them. But on the other hand, I can't really just say to all the guys, um, hey, quit freaking out, you know, like if you're not a rapist, it's not going to be a problem. Because one, that's not true. People can often, are sometimes accused, uh, you know, without due cause or fair reason. And for two, because it's not pragmatic, like it doesn't fix anything. Um, there's not really an institution solution to it either. I mean, it's already again, it's already, you know, um, unlawful to sexually harass your co-workers. So it seems like we're already covered in that respect. What I would be interested in seeing is a broad cultural movement of um, call it out if you see it. That's what I would be interested in seeing. Um, that to not just men, not men versus women, not men be careful and women be paranoid, but men and women, if you see people misbehaving, don't passively accept it happening because it's happening along gendered lines. It's kind of like bullying in school, you know? Um, the way to stop it isn't to tell the bullies to stop or to tell the victims to hit back. It's to make sure everyone is collectively unacceptive of that type of behavior. And I don't know how to have that conversation or advocate for those changes if there's so much mutual respective paranoia um because there are so many people that i've talked to who seem to think like right now like if they're alone in the like in a room with a woman like they're going to walk out like with with a with a court order you know f filed against them or or and there are a lot of women and i will admit this i think perhaps regretfully who i do think sometimes uh extend their paranoia to an extent that it can make it difficult to have conversations about gender imbalance um but i i i, I feel like I feel like contributing to either of those patterns, and I do believe the former one is much more prominent than the latter, I think contributing to either of those patterns kind of prolongs the issue, or it prevents the conversation we're looking for. Um, because the dichotomous relationship was what bore this issue. I don't know if it's 
capable of being solved within that framework. Do you know what I mean? Do, do you agree with that? That's sort of like a broader cultural shift is kind of the, 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 the next step forward here? I, I do in part agree and part um, feel some exception to that. <clears throat> the, um, the reason I want the hashtag me too monologue to become a hashtag me too dialogue is because um, in the world of work, um, work has clearly um, evolved in a way that has been, uh, well, for example, um, you know, Bloomberg and his, you know, jokes, um, you know, this, the, the, the in, in male workplaces, the more dangerous the workplace is, uh, the more males do what I call the commerce of masculinity, which is the trading of wood covered put downs. If you and I are off this show, you, know, you might you know, put down me you know, something for something, I might put you down with something. And it would be a sign of moving from um, professional fr uh, people to friendships and begin beginning to trust each other uh, for, you know, uh, but um, in uh, so the, the, that, that trading of wit covered put downs is a very um, uh, is a way of helping a firefighter know uh, that if a new firefighter enters into the fire station uh, that you can um, that you can joke back and forth with each other and he can laugh at himself and that is a cue for you that if the if the roof falls in when um, when you're in a house um, that that firefighter will will um, come in and rescue you as opposed to uh, the firefighter that says oh I really don't you know, don't, don't um, insult me like that or don't put me down like that um, I'm a, uh, is more of a prima donna and is not somebody that you're going to be able to trust um, you know if your if your home is on fire um, you know um, that's that is uh, and you're a firefighter entering into a dangerous situation you t you create some sense of that that happening but when a woman comes into that environment and you're and and there's a, a putting down of her uh, she experiences as it as discrimination. So what is the conclusion to that? Stop, stop the, um, um, the wood-covered put-downs. Um, you know, stop them except when women are around. The conclusion, the, the solution to that, in my opinion, is having that out in the open in a dialogue where the woman can safely say that when, when you do put me down, um, I'm not experiencing it as, uh, as an evolution of your trust in me that enters me into the place where I can be um, 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 put down like that uh, because you recognize that I'm strong enough to take it and you want me to be part of the group as opposed to isolated from the group, um, that it doesn't feel to me that way. And the man's saying, well, this is my best intent. My intent is when I put you down um, was to have you be part of the group or I did avoid putting you down and I, but as a result of that, I never really felt you you would be comfortable in the group or we would be comfortable with you. So the moment you walk into the room, we talk differently and we all feel like there's straitjackets on us. And so that so that's the type of dialogue that would help the women understand what's going on with the men and the men understand what's going on with the women and just talk through, well, what would we feel comfortable with here? You know, do we want the men just to stop the type of things that they've been comfortable with and they've evolved with? And the same type of thing with the discussion that I was pointing out before, the father that walks into a park um, with his children and, and, and senses that the women are all gathering together, a single mothers are gathering, uh, the, the mothers whose maybe husbands are um, working and allowing them to have the luxury to be able to sit around and talk um, with their children 
that there be a dialogue among those groups. You know, when when you look at me in a way that looks like, you know, what's wrong with him? Why is he, un is he must be unemployed? He's out here day after day with his children. The children are sitting on his lap. He must be an ostracizer. Uh, we can invite him over because we have been talking about our hairstylists and he certainly probably wouldn't be willing to talk about that or we wouldn't be as comfortable talking about that. Um, and so th these types of things require dialogues between the sexes, not because, and here's where I most disagree with you, I would, I abhor suggesting that women are subjugated or women are oppressed. Um, that is to me extremely arguable. If you're looking at the world outside the home and the pathways to the CEO ship, that is a, a set of, um, a set of opportunities that were closed to women historically. If you're looked at, the, if you're looking at the opportunity to be a, um, a full-time dad or to do something like have a woman support you economically um, while um, while you raise the children, or have a woman just support you economically, period, um, and without losing respect for you, um, then you're talking about a different type of thing that you could call the subjugation of men or men being oppressed, but I wouldn't call, I would object to myself calling it that too. This was the expectation of men that you didn't have an option to work. When men and women had children, women have developed as a result of the women's movement, and I'm in favor of this, three options. The option to work full-time, the option to raise children full-time, the option to do some combination of both. And 40% of women with children who are married, they work full-time. 40% are full-time involved with children and 20% work part-time. The male, as a father, tends to have three options also. also. Option one is work full-time. Option two is work full-time. Option three is work full-time. Another, or he works overtime if he's an executive and uh, two jobs if he's a working class man. And, but the feminist movement never says, you know, gee, men experience these um, women having three options and then having no options. Um, and, um, you know, a world of three option women and no option men, um, that must be hard for men. Let's talk about it. Let's open the dialogue for men to talk about it. It's all about words like subjected and oppressed. Um, and that keeps men, if, a, if an oppressor is talking up and saying, this is hard on me, or I have subjected women, but I want to say something, that doesn't create the space for somebody who feels they've always, they're classified as an oppressor, um, to be able to open up and speak up. And in the work that I do in couples communication, I find opening our hearts to someone else's worldview is the most important single thing we can do without, in our mind's eye, having an, an internal dialogue of what is my response to that in a, in a debate. And of course, this is you know, a de debate slash dialogue like we're doing, that's, that's natural. Um, but basically debate training is divorce training. It's teaching people how to prepare their argument um, as the other person is talking, as opposed to prepare, uh, as opposed to fully immersing ourselves um, into the other person's perspective. I don't- Real quick before you respond, Vosh, I just want to point out guys for you know, time's sake, uh, we, I don't know if you've got a hard time limit for 4 p.m. Eastern or I'll, I'll have to cut it off at two just um, for, for, sure. for reasons. I, I, I have made other plans also. Um, okay. But... All right. So just a heads up, guys, we've got like 15 minutes left. Uh, go right ahead with your response. <clears throat> yeah, of course. Um, 
So I would obviously agree, um, you probably shouldn't use debate tactics when arguing with a significant other. Um, I have done that in the past. I am also an insufferable person to be a partner to, so I recognize my personal failing in that respect. This is just how I like talking, but completely agreed. Um, so you said, and there's something I agree with here, and then a lot of stuff that I disagree with that I want to sort of pan off to. Um, with regards to the thing that I agree with, I think that generally speaking, the world we live in the best possible world when people can joke with each other without mutual offense. Um, to me, a, like an, a perfect racial world is not one in which nobody ever makes jokes about race, but in which people can make those jokes and they are harmless and meaningless because they are not reinforced by any social prejudice. That would be my ultimate goal. Um, we're probably a long way away from that at the moment, but it is, I think, ultimately, a, a, a offense is an indication of a problem. Um, the issue that I have, though, is I, I cannot accept the, um, the, the argument that there is not um, a significant, like, oppression of women. I don't know if we would go with the term oppression or, like, social subjugation or just being held to, like, an unfair set of social expectation, but, like, there are so many ways in which women are like experience very significant and very unique like social disadvantages from um from 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 uh, controlled studies that show that women are taken less seriously in business environments to suggesting that they are subjected to a much higher level of interpersonal uh, interpartial and like business violence both sexual and physical um to research indicating that people tend to think that women have talked for just as long as the men when women have talked for half as long as the men in like a controlled environment to the fact that the myth that like women have always historically stayed at home and looked after the kids is very ahistorical. Since the Industrial Revolution, poor people in this family, uh, poor people in this country, women and men, have both set out to work. Um, there has never been a history in this country where like all the women were like. Um, dainty child-rearing folk, people of color and poor people, the women have always been working. Um, and they then they would have to come home and take care of the kid and clean up and prepare dinner. Um, there are definitely some limited, like, specific elements where women are afforded a greater range of social freedom because men are subjected to, like, a very stringent set of, like, masculine expectation. One of them, for example, war. I completely agree. Uh, the, the expectation that men are, like, disposable, like, fighting units that are supposed to die like heroes so we can preserve our freedom is disgusting to me. Um, you can make some like ar broad argument about how women suffer from war because they tend to be the ones who are colonialized and raped in the parts of the world that we end up traveling to. But if we're looking strictly from a domestic space, this is pretty obviously something that hurts men vastly disproportionately. But like uh, uh, with with sort of with respect to issues like that, though, I really do feel like the broader social portrait indicates one in which women are uh, mistreated across the board. I don't know. Again, I don't know if oppression or mistreatment. I don't know like what the term you would. Uh, 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 m find most agreeable, but I, I, I just I can't ignore like what seems to be a fairly uh, consistent sociological reality, and that's why. And if I may draw it back to like a, a parallel. Um, it's one of the reasons why I imagine um, after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, and I say I imagine, but I know there are studies on this, after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, um, there was a great degree of um, tension and animosity in mixed race businesses um, when black and white folks work together in offices or whatever, because much in the same way that today, you know, all the boys can joke around, but then like they see a woman, everything gets all quiet because they don't know if the woman's going to get offended. That same thing happened with black folk and white folk. And the reason why that was the case is because the were still underlying systems of oppression that made it impossible for people to speak to each other at an equal social stage. Because, like, there's a huge difference between, like, you know, it's 1968 and you're, like, making a joke. Hey, you, you dumbass, you know, get over that and get over here, boy. Saying that to a white man, a black man, very different social connotations. So I understand. And I think ultimately, and I'm sure you would agree with me, even if you don't 
even if you aren't of the opinion that women are like especially oppressed, that inequality is the bedrock of that tension or 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 at least disparity and um and and from that point forward it's just a matter of how do we best alleviate that disparity um you obviously have significantly more academic weight than me so um you've been pulling along farther um with that respect than i have but if 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 like fundamentally we both agree that the the best world is a world with free of social obligation regard to gender um and it's just a matter of how to best implement that world, then I think, and I guess I may, I may be, if this is going to be like my final main point, I guess I would, I would ask or suggest you find ways to reframe some of your valuable ideas in such a way as they do not conflict with the sentiments of the better feminists. Not those hockey, second wave, boy, bad, girl, good feminists, but proper intersectional feminism has value or sees value in a great deal of what you've said. And the fact that you're so broadly maligned suggests to me that much of the disagreement seems to be like terminology or semantic oriented. At least that's the impression that I got when I became more familiar with your work, which is frustrating because the world needs this stuff. So yeah, that, that, that would be my, my argument at the end of the day, I think. Well, a, thank you. And B, would you be good enough um, as you sort of, re before you get too far away from this and the rest of your life takes over, if you can think about some of the ways that I've worded things or framed things and how I might improve that to be able to, um, you know, to communicate with intersectional feminists that are more, you know, open to hearing uh, some of these perspectives, that would be very helpful. I would hope that we would be able to speak at some point in the future again, maybe after yeah, some that time. Would be that would be very, very, very nice. A couple of thoughts that I have. The um, I think when you do studies of women in business, um, you can definitely find many areas of discrimination. Um, what we have, we what we've done in the past fifty years, though, is to make the word discrimination based on the studies of women and men in business, as opposed to um, studying men and women in the childcare arena. So when I go into family court and there, and <clears throat> because my research for the boy crisis found that children who do best have about an equal amount of time with both their moms and their dads, and number two, that there's no bad mouthing and number of, of either sex by the other. And number three, that the father and mother live within about 20 minutes drive time for, of each other. And number four, that there be a, a significant amount of consistent couples communication counseling. Those four must do's have to follow a divorce uh, if you want your child to do well. Well, I say this to the judge and the judge hears those words, but over and over again, um, be, be, all of those things are gender neutral. I should be getting as many phone calls from moms who say, my husband, um, the father, does not want me to be equally involved. I want you to defend in court the importance of my children having as much mother as father. I could do that, but I've never gotten a single call um, with that request. All of the calls for the last 30 years that I've gotten by one gender or the other have been dads saying, I've usually saying, um, I've spent 50 to $150,000 uh, fighting to have my children be involved equally. From my perspective, 
that shouldn't be an argument that has to even happen. I should never have had to get paid a penny in family court to be able to explain to judges the importance of, of the biological dad, because it's so clean and so clear uh, when we're talking about a mom being the primary parent versus a dad being the primary parent. It's so clear that 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 is helpful. Now, many times in court, um, we're able to have the children have both parents, but the fact that the parents often, the father has to often spend um, a quarter million dollars or so to get it means that the, the privilege of being an equally involved dad, that is the privilege to the child of having an equally involved dad, um, lays at the groundwork, and as a sociologist, you would know this, of the, you know, the one half of 1% that can afford um, $150,000 to $250,000 to fight for that. Uh, there's a relatively small number of men who can fight for that, who have the time to fight for that because they're off earning that $150,000 to $250,000 above and beyond taxes um, to be able to make that fight. And no parent should have to fight for that. That should be the presumption of equality. So when we measure discrimination only in the workplace, we have an enormous we have an enormous um, type of discrimination against men who are not being um, encouraged to do that. If I uh, second part of that type of discrimination of, against dads is a man going up at a party and saying, you know, in, in college, let's say, and telling a woman that um, who maybe wants to be a future attorney. And he says, and she says, well, you know, what are you planning to be? Oh, I, what I really love to do is to be a full-time dad. Um, that would really work best well while you're a future attorney. Most men do not find that that woman returns. Um, they may refer him, her, him to a, 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 um, a journalist in the room, but not, not, they, they don't have the interest in her, so men tell me. Um, and so this is, this, is, this is the other half of discrimination. And I was good friends with both Betty Friedan and, and Gloria Steinem and, during the women's movement. And Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem both said the exact same thing. Um, Betty Friedan wrote in the book, The Second Stage, that did not get very much coverage. Um, she wrote that the women's movement would plateau when we don't have an equal amount of emphasis on dads being, um, on, on, on changing the male role um, as, as well as the female role on dads being able to be involved um, in their children's lives um, in, a, in, in, in that type of way. Um, and so, and, and Gloria Steinem used to say, what we need is more women in the workplace and more men at home. But the second part of that has not been looked at as discrimination against um, men. Uh, it's, so we haven't looked at the whole picture. Last, I would say that the single most important thing that can be done, I started couples communication courses around the country because I saw that women uh, and men were getting divorced because the Achilles heel of all human beings is our inability to ha handle personal criticism without becoming defensive. And we need to be training boys and girls from an early age to be able to handle perspectives and that they might define as criticism, uh, whether they're intended to or not, at a very early age in preparation to both be fathers and mothers that are not living in minimum security prisons um, while they're married and just waiting out the time to their, for their children to get older, um, but that have um, th that really love each other and know how to love each other. Um, the qualities that it took 
to um, defend against an enemy were qualities of being defensive, qualities of killing the enemy before the enemy kills you. But the quality that, that it takes to love and be loved in a family are qualities predominantly of listening to each other. And one of the reasons I agreed to do this dialogue with you is because um, I heard um, that you are the, the gentleman that you are and that you are able to listen as well as talk about these things. And so I'm very happy and proud uh, to be able to, to talk these issues through. Thank you so much, Dr. Farrell. I can't tell you how much I appreciate the opportunity to have spoken to you as well. Um, I mean, I've, I, I, have, I have been reading of and uh, for you for um, well over a decade. To speak to you is pretty surreal. Thank you so much for the, um, the incredible generosity, the time. I really appreciated the conversation. And um, yeah, I, I do sincerely hope we're able to talk again sometime in the future. Absolutely. Be very open to that. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Vosh, very much. And thank you probably, Tim. Um, thank for, you, Tim. Uh, for making this happen. Well, certainly. It's a pleasure. I'm really glad just to make this stuff happen. Um, as I said, you know, I hope to sit back. And uh, I think it's better for that, that I just didn't say anything. So <laughs> I, th um, I think we had, we, you know, no bad faith here. I think we, we, we kept it together. <laughs> Um, we, we handled ourselves like adults. <laughs> we tried. Um, thank you both so much. I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. Um, I know, of course, you have um, uh, uh, more obligations to head up, so good luck with those. Um, likewise with university positions um, uh, uh, in the near future. And uh, stay healthy. Thank you very much. And, and you too. And thank you for uh, the gentleman and scholar that you combine uh, in yourself. Thank you. Tim, be well. Thank you again. Thanks again. All right, so guys, um, if you can find uh, Dr. Warren Farrell um, at warrenfarrell.com slash books. He's got a, a fairly new book out, uh, The Boy Crisis. And of course, you can find Vosh in our announcement channel. Uh, and if you just search YouTube for Vosh, you can find him. Thanks again, guys. Always a pleasure. Have a wonderful day. One thing there, which is that the um, a lot of people seem to prefer or like the Boy Crisis book in audible form as much as in um, uh, written form. Um, and so I do encourage you to check that part of that, that option for listenership out. Who has time to read anymore? I love audiobooks. Yes, me too. <laughs> play them video games. Thank you again. I did read those for five days in the studio. So it was, <laughs> it was fun doing that. Thank you again. All right, so I hope we can get this uh, together again. Um, really appreciate it again, guys. Um, and for anyone listening, we're going to uh, continue this discussion, uh, discord.gg slash blue politics. Um, always a pleasure to have you guys on. Thank you. Farewell. Bye-bye. Bye, Vash.